Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features guest Bible teacher Beth Moore, and it was recorded on Sunday, April 24th as part of our Life of Jesus sermon series. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at info at faithbridge.org. If you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Beth. Oh, good morning, FaithBridge. I am so happy to see you this morning. It is my great privilege to serve you today, and I do not take it lightly. Uh, my husband of 43 and a half years is here with me today for this service, and I'm so glad to be able to introduce him to you. I love, love, love the local church. I want to say that to you before I even get started because this is my thing. I, I cannot even tell you what church has meant to my personal life. I was raised in the church in a small town, a college town in Arkansas, Arkadelphia, Arkansas, where Washtenaw Baptist is and, and Henderson uh, State University. And so it kind of had a certain flavor to it. And I went to First Baptist Church there in Arkadelphia. And I was raised in a three-generation family. So it was with my parents and my maternal grandmother, big family, eight of us. And we would sit in a long, long, pew all together, all the way from my brothers and sisters, all the way up to my parents and up to my grandmother, and then her friends. And they all came into the service after Sunday school, of course, and had their quarterlies with them and had on their pillbox hats and their little, their little, this, this little uh, bit of, uh, of lace coming right across their face. And, you know, of course, in, in those days, we always sang with hymnals. And I have laughed and said that I think Southern Baptists use hymnals because it keeps our hands from lifting. I, I, I don't know if that's true, but I love to say that it's true. And so in those days, the, my grandmother and her friends, when the minister of music would have us stand to our feet, it would take them the entire first verse to ever get to their feet because they were in their late 70s and early 80s. And so then they would help one another up and it would just you know take half the song and they'd always get the hymnal and yet they knew every single word they were going to sing. And then they would begin to sing, and as they did, the tears would stream down their cheeks, and I found it to be so, just like we sang in the song, fascinating. Why is it you love to come to church this much, but you weep all the way through it? But after you have spent a lifetime doing everything you know how to do by way of the power of the Spirit to trust God, through, for my grandmother at least, the loss and burial of three children, a spouse. And so by that time, you have lived amazing grace. You know the power of the blood. You have either surrendered all or found yourself completely lost. And you have a little blessed assurance because Jesus is yours. I was raised in a very troubled home, even though I was also loved. We came from a lot of instability, a lot of problems in our home, abuse in our home. And so church was my safe place. And I do realize that that is not the story for everyone. I'm very aware of the Church 2 movement. I, I understand it is heart, the most heartbreaking place of all, a place that we should have been able to trust. But for me, 
It was the opposite of that. It was my trustworthy place. It was my safe place. It was my harbor. My home was not safe. My church was very much safe. And it would continue to be throughout my upbringing and throughout growing as a young servant of Christ. I love it so much. So I'm so glad to be able to serve it today. I love, I pass by this way uh, pretty regularly and often even on Sundays and I see so many cars pulling into this parking lot and I just bless God for you. I have so much esteem for this church. I have such a great respect for your pastor. This is a fine church and I am so glad to be able to serve it today. I do want you to turn with me if you're not already there into Luke chapter seven. You are so blessed that you are spending 2022 going through the gospel of Luke. Of, of the four gospels, it is my favorite right next to Matthew and Mark and John. <laughs> And then there's Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then there's going to be Hebrews and there's going to be all the 1st and 2nds. I just love the whole thing. I've said to anyone who would listen that the Son of God saved my soul and the Word of God saved my mind. And it truly did. It truly did. Coming from so much instability. Uh, as a mid-20-year-old uh, who was trying to learn how to teach Sunday school to save her life, I was already doing a little bit of speaking, but I hadn't begun to teach yet, and then I'd been asked to spot a Sunday school class for a while, and I, I was terrible. I ran it just like an aerobics teacher would, because that's what I was, and so I would try to think of something fun to talk about, and then, you know, have no idea how to find a scripture that would go with what I wanted to say. It was just a mess. And so I took a Bible doctrine class, and uh, the man standing at the podium taught in a way I had never seen anyone teach. I had been around a lot of people that loved Jesus, and I'd been around a lot of people that loved the church, and I'd been around a lot of people that had respected the scriptures, but I had never known anyone that would rather consume the word of God than his next meal until I met that man. And it was the most astounding thing I'd ever seen. I was just absolutely mesmerized. I had already been at that point uh, in the daily habit of reading some scripture, I've been journaling, prayer journaling since I was 18 years old when I surrendered to the ministry. And so I had a great respect for it. There were even scriptures that I really enjoyed, but I did not know what it was like to delight in the scriptures. It still was discipline to me. This is daily discipline. It's important. This is priority. But I didn't know of it as something that, I mean, would absolutely captivate your imagination until you knew that you were ruined for anything else except a life of in-depth Bible study. And I mean, I got in my car. I didn't even know what you called it. And I, I, I said to the Lord, I mean, literally ran to the car. I was supposed to stay for the service. It was a Sunday evening. And I didn't. I went straight to the car because I had to discuss this with the Lord. And I got in my car. And I shut the door, burst into tears. And I looked out. You know, it was like he couldn't see through the roof. And so I looked out uh, through the windshield. And I said to him, I don't know what that was, but I want it. I want that. And as I live and breathe, he struck a match against a stone and lit a torch in my heart that I have yet to get over. Every day is not chill bumps, but I'm going to tell you something. I don't know of anything more thrilling to study than the Word of God. And I do mean Genesis to Revelation. The whole thing is just like brilliance on a page. The sacred text, the Word of God, the breath etched on the scroll. And so it is my privilege to read the first five verses to you out of Luke chapter 7. When he, and of course this is Christ, concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. 
When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Now I want you to stop right here and glance back for a minute and I wanna give you a little bit of context here. So he enters Capernaum. So if you'll think with me of a Bible map from the back of your Bible, see with me the nation of Israel, the whole region, and you'll look at it like this with me and you'll see right here is going to be the Sea of Galilee, then we've got the Jordan River coming down like this and then we get down here to the Dead Sea. So right up here around Galilee, at the very top of it, we have water coming down from Mount Hermon, a river flowing into the Sea of Galilee, and just to the left of it, we've got Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is not just your normal fishing town, not in the scriptures, it's not, because it's described with a military establishment there, an installment that is headed up by this centurion who would head over, uh, obviously, right around a hundred men and they were settled there in Capernaum probably more than just a Roman military force they were probably there to do customs if you look and see Capernaum uh, you'll see that it is very very close to where the Jordan is going to to feed in uh, to the to the Sea of Galilee and it splits, those waters split the east from the west and very likely it was a trade route, believe very much to be so. So more than anything, he probably, this centurion served as the customs officer, oversaw everything that was traded in that area of the world. Now go back to that mental map with me and you've got Capernaum right here. So here is the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum right here. Well, what you have just had, and, and uh, Pastor Ken uh, told me for certain that you would have just studied this together before you went into the Lent season because you had already started in Luke. So you'd have been in Luke chapter 6. And so the Sermon on the Mount would have been just over here to the left. So he's going to go straight from it in our text here into Capernaum. And so at this point, when the centurion hears he's there, he sends for him. Now, it's kind of like, how did he know to? This is a Roman officer. But if you'll look with me, and I would love for you to glance at it, in the middle of Luke chapter 6, I'm going to start reading at verse 17 so that you have a little bit of context for him entering that city. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place, with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And, for, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing all of them. Such strange terminology, mysterious things that we'll not fully understand until we see him face to face, how this power was going out of him. We, we hear that kind of terminology when the woman is reaching through the crowd and grabs a hold of the edge of his garment, and he, she is instantly healed. So in the picture that Matthew gives us in his gospel, he describes in more detail the kind of people that were being brought forward. People having seizures, tormented by demons, all sorts of sicknesses, uh, the blind and the deaf, and they were being healed. They were hearing the words and being healed. And so this is the context of him then giving what you and I know as a Sermon on the Mount. And the next thing we have, so all of that is going to be red letter edition, we head into where he enters Capernaum. 
So by this time, Capernaum is not very far from, from where the Sermon on the Mount was believed to be. The reputation of Jesus has already entered that city. And so he is known to be a healer, this miracle worker. And so I suppose that he would have learned that, would have heard he was in town, especially because the military would have wanted to be aware. Crowds were following him. And so he sends a group of Jewish elders, which is interesting because this is a Gentile Roman officer, but he's got a close connection with the Jewish elders because as you see, they're going to go ahead of him and they're going to say to Jesus, listen, this guy loves Israel. He built us a synagogue. He's a friend to us. He, he might have been what they would have called just like a, a prospective proselyte. Maybe he was coming to believe in the God of Israel. We just have no idea. But they had favor with him and he had favor with them. Come, his servant is sick whom he greatly cares for and is on the verge of death. Come. And they say to Jesus a very interesting thing. He sends them, it says in verse 3, the centurion hears about Jesus, sends Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reach Jesus, they pled with him earnestly. He's worthy of this. He's worthy of this. So Jesus goes with them, verse 6. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now I want to stop right there. And let's settle on that for a minute. Because I want to ask you a question. What changed his mind? We don't have any way of knowing the answer to that. But don't you find it interesting that he sends Jewish elders to go get him and bring him to them. And then when he's getting closer, so I'm supposing that somebody ran ahead and said, Jesus is on his way. And at this point, the centurion sends back word and says, no, 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 no. You, you don't have to come. I'm not worthy for you to even come in under my roof. He says, there's an, there's an alternative to this, and you know what it is, and we'll get to it in just a moment. But I just find it so interesting. Did, did you notice that the Jewish elders said of him, he is so worthy for you to grant this. But the centurion is like, oh, I am not worthy. We, we don't know exactly what the dynamics are. We, he might have just wanted to save him the trouble. But he just didn't really want to bother him with having to come all the way to the house. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But for some reason, I'm just taken by the phrase, under my roof. Maybe others who know the public us, the work us, the leader us, the servant us, the online us, the ministry us, the school board us, the police officer us, the school teacher us, the healthcare worker us, the nonprofit ministry us, the advocate us. Maybe they might say in interceding for us, Lord, he has done so many good things. He's worthy for you to grant this. Lord, she's done so many good things. She's worthy of you granting this. Maybe on a really good day, we might even kid ourselves that we're worthy of Christ's attention and miraculous intervention when we're out about in this role or that. Maybe. 
but under our own roof, that's a lot harder to do, isn't it? Under our own roofs, we know better, don't we? Isn't that where, at times, we've loved the poorest, said the most things we regret, shown the worst side of ourselves, the place where we most want to show the best side of ourselves in our own homes, with our own family members, with people that mean so much to us if we share a home with others. Otherwise, if they're outside the home, it's just that closest circle to us that sees the real thing, that sees the worst side of us. Isn't that where the people know us the best? Where they don't really believe our press? Our realist us is under our own roof, wouldn't you agree? But of course, the climactic point of the text is found in one brief request. I'll return back to the verse that it says, that is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word. All you have to do, Jesus. You don't have to come. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. He explains why he knows that's true. In verse 8, For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. I'm a man placed under authority. Of course, this is the key word of the text. The account is about authority. I thought and thought about this this week, how many times Jesus must have said the name Lazarus to Lazarus. His dear friend. How many times he would have been in their home and would have just said it across a meal. Lazarus, what, what did you do about that situation last week? Uh, Lazarus, w- would, you, would you grab me some more bread? H- how's your brother Lazarus? All the times he would have said his name as his identification, as well as an endearment, Lazarus. And then there was that one day when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And a cold, stone cold, dead man receives life, stands up and walks out of the tomb in his grave clothes because just say the word. You know, there's a way that we say our children's names when we're just calling them by name. Then there's a way we say their name when we mean get your rear end (laughs) to your mother. I, I wonder if when our callings came to us, any of us who are in Christ, 
have been called. We have a holy calling. And, you know, you try to, to research that Greek word and try to make some extensive paragraph definition of what does it mean to be called, but essentially what it boils back down to is that somewhere along the way, Jesus said your name and told you to follow him, and you responded. You didn't hear it with your ears, not with your, with your human ears, but somehow your enlightened heart received it, and you followed him. No telling how many times he'd said that name before. No telling how many times people around the earth have shared our names. But there would have been a time when he'd have said your name with such authority that you responded. Authority. I've been giving this a lot of thought getting ready for you today. And I think maybe it is possible that there is no word more significant or relevant in our present church culture here in the West, in America certainly, and perhaps Australia is another recent example, not a word more relevant or significant than the word authority. I think the centurion has something timely to say, not just to servants in his household, but to servants of Jesus who may be sick at heart presently or discouraged, or wondering what in the world is going on. The Lord Jesus, in his great love for us and his unshakable commitment to his church, still walks among the lampstands. Those commendations and warnings that he dictated to John for that little circle, that, that little, dis, little bit of a disfigured circle of churches, the seven churches, still reverberates today. I think of all he surfaced in previous years. And I think of it like 1 Peter chapter 1, that as he is refining his church as he promised that he would do, that he has turned up the fire so that the dross in our present culture in Christianity would surface and could be skimmed off. That the higher that heat goes, the more the impurities all the way from the bottom come to the surface and I believe that God is dealing with us, but I believe that God is dealing with us in love and commitment because he is for us. I'm going to talk in we terms, but I want you to understand that I'm talking about the culture of Christianity in the West and not individuals or even individual churches. There could be a whole lot of exceptions to this. I'm talking about the overall climate of our Christian culture in the West. And when we think about all he surfaced in previous years, like dross from gold in the refiner's fire, I wonder if the common denominator of the dross is over the matter of authority. And I want you to give it some thought. As this was occurring to me this week, I've tried to run it through my head over and over and over again, all the different things that we are seeing surface. And I've asked myself, what is the common pollutant of what has surfaced? Whether it's about money, fame, politics, celebrity, power, sex, platform. Whether it's oppression, racism, exploitation, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, winning, shaming, slandering, canceling, covering up, bullying, and branding. Think with me. 
Those things are different from one another. But what do they have in common? Is it not something about the matter of authority? Is it not in every case the misuse or abuse of authority? And have we, remember again with me, I'm speaking in very general terms about the overall climate of our Christian culture presently. Have we not taken authority that was not ours? And, and have we not become authorities on absolutely everything? Have you seen anything like it? All you need to know is three Bible verses and suddenly you are an expert on everything. I mean, disease control, politics, whatever it is. I mean, we are experts on it. Because somehow something has gone wrong with the way we are dealing with authority. As if God is saying over us in this climate and period of time, me potter, you clay. Me potter, you clay. Repeat after me. Me potter, you clay. Because you clay think you are the potter and I am your clay. And you are creating me in your image so that you can get glory and I can be to your good pleasure. You think you are calling me. It is I who call. Authority. I want you to turn with me, if you would please, to Colossians chapter 2, because it has something so powerful to say, such an image for us. I love to think visually in the scriptures. The more I can see a picture of it, I do this in my memory work. If I can I memorize something and get, a, get a, a, a picture of it in my mind, how it goes together. I'll even look at it. Is it in alphabetical order, the phrases? What, what, kind of, what do I see in my mind as I say them? This has got a, a perfect picture here in Colossians chapter 2. Now, I'm going to do something I don't like to do, and I'm going to jump right in the middle of a chapter and not give it uh, much context. But this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he's obviously writing to the churches of Colossae. But I want to begin at verse 18. I've been reading to you out of the CSB, but I'm going to read it to you out of the ESB now because it's what I memorized it in. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. If you're looking, if, in many of your Bibles, you will see that the word head is capitalized, and it should be. Not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what this is saying. I mean, what is he talking about? These, these are not terms that we use much. Asceticism, worship of angels, going on about visions. But what he's saying is this. You are doing all sorts of spiritual talk all around it. Things that have to do with Jesus, perhaps. Ways of practicing worship, perhaps. But you've gotten all fixated on those things that surround the head instead of the head himself. And you have lost connection with the head. It's, it's such a word to us because I think that it is possible that maybe in this hour, as I do what many of you are doing, that's just like searching the scriptures. 
um, going to God in prayer. What, Lord, what are you looking for? What, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? What are you after with us? Because there's no way. I mean, we're past the point that this is an accident. Because he's going after every denomination. I mean, there will be no rock unturned by the time it's over with. And is God not for us? Of course he is. So, Lord, what, what are you doing? What are you looking for? And I think maybe the great physician is giving his body, especially in this part of the world, a chiropractic adjustment. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, where, where they have to pop the spine back into alignment. Because you see, when the spine gets out of alignment, then the ribs are not where they ought to be. The joints are not where they ought to be. The limbs don't do and operate the way they're supposed to operate because they're all out of alignment with the head who is Christ. One of the things that intrigues me about that Colossians 2 passage is that it says that when we are connected, holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, that it will grow with a growth that is from God. Grows with a growth that is from God. So here's what I'm offering to you. That there, if there is a growth that comes from God, there is also a growth that does not come from God. There is a growth that just comes from human effort, from the things of human minds, and, and perhaps even human skill, a growth that comes from man. And I don't mean out of hubris and selfish ambition, although there's certainly that. But I think that would be obvious to us, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm not saying it's always obvious when we see it, but I'm saying we would understand God coming after that. That of course, anybody that's like full of themselves, um, any church communities that, have, have, that are all about teaching their people to have selfish ambition and to build them up in the things of the flesh, uh, to do all of these other, that we get, that we get. But that's not all I'm talking about. We're also talking about those things that are just of human strategies. And I, I don't want you to get me wrong because we have to have some planning I mean, you need people out there telling you where to park in a parking lot this size. I mean, we're, gonna, we're hoping we remember where we parked. Somebody's got to tell us how to get out of the parking lot. Somebody has to oversee how groups are going to meet and which rooms and, and down what halls they need to put this particular gathering and that. I'm not saying that no planning takes place. Of course it does. But I'm talking about we can strategize growth. We really need to grow our church. And we can just go for all sorts of the best of plans. Have our seminars, get our committees together. And he's going like, you know what? Growth comes from being a spine, well-adjusted, holding fast to the head. There is a growth that is from God. And what I think, I don't know. I'm just like, take this down in the lightest pencil. Take it down in something you can erase because I don't know if I even know what I'm talking about. But what I think, what I just think is that what we're seeing right now is that God is going to cut away the growth that is from man. And he's going for the growth that is from God. So it's upsetting to us because we've lost a number of our people in our churches. We see people, we read statistics, how many people um, would call themselves a Christian today compared to 20 years ago. All these things unsettle us, scared to death that this, what's happening is at the end of Christianity, there's no end of Christianity. 
There's no way. The, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. The church is not going to die. It can't. It belongs to Jesus, and it is filled with his eternal spirit. It's not going anywhere. But is he pruning it and cutting it back? Oh, I do believe he is. I do believe he is. And it's unsettling because we think, I mean, what's happening? And what I find so very ironic is that one reason why people are walking away from the church is because all of this is surfacing. Is God not faithful? Every time you see something surface, that's God being faithful. I mean, I don't like it any more than you do. It's not fun. But it's God saying, I will clean my own house. I want you to remember with me today, God is doing us good. You do not want to pick this hour to be away from the work of Christ because we are sitting in an era of time that when we get to the presence of God in glory, when he says, could the class of 2022 please stand up and tell your story, it's going to be amazing and you don't want to miss it because as long as I have lived and I have lived no few years, I have never seen anything like the havoc going on right now. And I think Jesus has come to the temple and turned everything upside down because he loves his people and because he is faithful. We are people called to the words of the centurion, I am a woman under authority. I'm a man under authority. We have been careless and callous in our leadership in so many ways, misused and abused authority. This is the way back. The spine readjusted to the head. Jesus says in 9 and 10, boy, he heard this and he was amazed. Listen, I don't know, it got to be hard to amaze Jesus. I mean, it's just got, since he can't be surprised, it's got to be really hard to amaze him. And so he turns to the crowd following him. He says, I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. So when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. I just love this. I just love this. I just love this because he said, just say the word. Well, did he? Because I'm staring over here and going like, he just gets there and he's healed. Because I, I just love this. Because yes, Jesus could have said it from a distance or he could have thought it and it was just done. As we close, the biggest question that we have at a time like this is that we know, I, I pray that you do, we have to be people of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He's constantly after our faith. And I'm going to tell you something, of all the things the enemy wants from you, it is not first and foremost your character, your marriage, your kids, your ministry, your business, it is your faith, your faith. That is what he is most after because that is what pleases God the most. And if you're like me, I'm going to hang on to the death that my God still works miracles. I will hang on to that for the, to the death. I will always pray first when someone is sick with some kind of disease. I will pray without hesitation that God will raise them up and he will heal them to his own glory here I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. But let me tell you something. There's nothing like the silence when we think, Did, I know he could have said it. 
Why didn't he? When we stand over a grave and think, I begged you. It would have taken one word. One word. You know what occurs to me? This is, this is the beauty of age. This is the joy of it. I bet every person in here that has gray hair, whether you can see it or not, <laughs> that has walked with Jesus long, would say to you, he can be trusted. He will be so good to you. You will not always get everything you ask. And sometimes you will think there is nothing but silence. But when you don't get that word, he is the word. He is. Oh, the word is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was made flesh to dwell among us. And we have seen his glory. Say the word. The mouth of the one that spoke into the vast nothingness and said, let there be light. And there was. And you know why? The planets just keep spinning. Sun keeps doing its thing. Moon keeps doing its thing. It's because he told it to and he hasn't told it to stop. That's what it means in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says he sustains all things by his powerful word. I'll let you know when I need you to change what you're doing. Until then, keep doing it. They're going with the last order they got from their authority. And by saying this, there's this marvelous, marvelous thing that the Apostle Paul says at the end of his last letter, 2 Timothy, last thing he wrote, and then his pen is just going to go dry. The great Apostle Paul, after all these letters, his pen's just going to go dry. And he says to him, you know, I'm, the time for my departure is near. I've competed well. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. You see, because he knew that that's the point. Will you keep the faith? Will you keep the faith? Will you keep the faith? That is finishing well. But he says the oddest thing right there at the end, he says, and the Lord will deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You think about it is he's got a death sentence and he knows they're going to take his head. I mean, they're going to chop his head off. We don't even know how long he is from it. And I ask you today, what part of being beheaded is being safely delivered to the heavenly kingdom? That's a fair question. And that's the beauty of it. I'm going to tell you this. We are here for the blink of an eye. The blink of an eye. We will see so many of our requests answered just the way we want them to be. Others will say, just say the word, just say the word, just say the word. We'll feel like that word never came. But that word in the silence says, I will sustain you. I will strengthen you. I will not be able to give you the miracle that you're asking for because I know what you do not know. But I will make you the miracle. I will make you the miracle. That is our God. And somehow, some way, no matter what happens to these bodies, every single one of us in Christ will be safely delivered to his heavenly kingdom. It is this and only this Jesus that God raised from the dead and seated at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named. 
He has no peer, no devil, nor demon, nor angel, nor man, no principality, no power can boast in his presence. He is the undefeatable, incorruptible, uncontainable, unstoppable Lord of all. And God seated this Jesus at his right hand and put all things under his feet and gave him as head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. At the end of Matthew is the Great Commission. I was raised on it. I will live by it to my last breath. Where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. And I will bring you home safely to your heavenly kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that, Lord, you are faithful when we have no idea what is going on and what you are doing. You are only glorious and good. You are true light and in you is no darkness at all. You cannot mislead us, nor can you ever be dethroned. And we just praise you today. We ask you, Father, would, would you fill us with faith? Build us into a mighty people of faith, Lord. We are so blessed to be alive at this moment on the kingdom calendar. Open our eyes to see it and give us the courage to become who you've made us. In the glorious and beautiful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.